Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We are back in the book of Ruth this morning, which let me just put you in remembrance real quickly. Ruth is a story, the the overall theme of, of Ruth is showing a bright hope during dark days. This All of Ruth took place during the period of the Judges, and the period of the Judges we saw at the very tail end of um, the book of Judges, the very last verse says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the result of that was nothing very right was done. They were up, down, in, out. But it's primarily um, the story of, and I worked on this all week, the guy's name is Elimelech. I finally got that pronunciation down. I worked hard on that one. And um, but it's, it's, it's the story of, of the family of Elimelech, Naomi in particular, and this one Gentile bride who represents us as the Gentile church, and then the Boaz, who is the guardian redeemer. I prefer that. King James says kinsman redeemer, but I like the NIV translates that guardian redeemer because Boaz is not only going to redeem Ruth and Naomi, he's going to redeem Naomi through Ruth and raise up children to Malon, which was, was Ruth's husband who died, but he guards them even before he redeems them back and, and gets all of their provisions back. But this, this whole scenario came about because Elimelech lived in Bethlehem. There was a, a, a drought, so there was famine in the nation, particularly around Bethlehem. And so he went to the world, went to Moab to seek his fortune because God couldn't provide for him in Bethlehem. And the result of that decision, and and that is probably one of the biggest lessons we can learn from the book of Ruth, is decisions are important. Decisions are vital. We can ask forgiveness for poor decisions, but sometimes we bear the fruit of poor decisions. Amen? And they did. Elimelech, by the time they they were there for 11 years, Elimelech was dead. Malon, the one son, and Killian, the other son, was dead, which left Naomi, a widow, with two widows, Ruth and Orpha, also with her. So now Naomi is the head of the household with two daughters-in-law, both of them Moabitesses, and Naomi says, hey, she's kind of like the prodigal son, nothing's going well here, I'm heading back to Israel. I heard that there's, there's food in Bethlehem now, I'm going back. She talks Orpha into staying, and Orpha did, and, but Ruth refused to leave her. In fact, Ruth said, and made a declaration, a covenant declaration, that where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people, and the most important one, your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. 
Ruth said, not only am I going with you, but we are joined. I am joining myself to you no matter what. Well, when they got back, God had already prepared their Redeemer. They're on the way back to the point where, where when they first got back, Naomi, which means pleasantness, everyone would come to Naomi, glad you're back home, Miss Pleasantness is here, and she'd say, don't call me pleasant. I'm bitter. My name is now bitter. Because I went over here, and the Lord done me wrong. Basically, that's the Roberts translation, but that was her attitude. We, my husband made some mistakes, I followed him, and God took everything from me. And we're going to see a little bit today. It's not necessarily God taking you, judging your actions, but your actions do have consequences. God, God has a plan for each one of us, but that plan is always blessing. We decide to get out from under His covering. We may not get those blessings. But God prepared Boaz. This was the character of Boaz. Proverbs eleven twenty five: The generous soul will be made rich. He who waters will also be watered. Boaz's character was a giver. Not just money, but in every sense. He cared about people. We saw that all through chapter 2. Chapter 2, Boaz, chapter 1 and 2, Boaz greeted his workers. He was interested in their spiritual life, their physical life. He was not all about Boaz. He was all about who can I bless, how can I keep people blessed. Because of that, God's going to use him to meet the two big needs that Ruth and Naomi have. They have needs for food and they have needs for family. Because they're widows in a, in a land where widows don't survive very, very long or very well. Chapter 2, we saw that Boaz blessed them. He gave them, just through the barley harvest, he gave them enough food to get them through an entire calendar year. That was unheard of for gleaners. Gleaners basically lived hand to mouth. They, they would get a lot of food sometimes in gleaning, but then they also had to beg a lot of times. Boaz stepped in and said, this is not going to be your fate. And he said in chapter 2 that he was doing this for Ruth because he had heard of how she treated Naomi. This was not just some guy, and, and Boaz is a little older. Well, that's hinted at. It really doesn't tell his age, but it's hinted at. And he's looking at Naomi, who is much younger. Remember, the, the practice in, in ancient times, especially in Jewish cultures, a man was normally in his early 30s. He was, once he got out of his, or got to his, his 30th year, he was finished with his apprenticeship. He had a, a, a skill and a job where he could provide for a family. And he went to seek marriage. And women became married, maritable, marriage eligible um, at puberty. So 13, 14, 15-year-old girls are marrying 30-year-old men. Now, in our culture, you know, people freak out at that, but that was the norm. Well, Boaz seems to be, we don't know if he was married and his wife died. We don't know the circumstances, but he seems to be alone with no children. And he's looking to be generous, but he looks at favor on Ruth because of how Ruth is treating Naomi. Not just because she's a good-looking lady. She may have been, 
The Bible really doesn't say. It just says that, that he heard how she treated Naomi and he was impressed. Now that brings us to Ruth chapter 3. So let's go to Ruth 3 and we're just going to go through this and see how this, because they, he is, Boaz has already made his intentions clear. You get near me, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to bless you. But he has done nothing to approach Ruth about taking up this right as a kingsman redeemer. 3 verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security, or a lot of translations say rest, for you, that it may, may be well with you. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Is he not our guardian redeemer? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This, and I've heard this referred to before, this is Naomi starting to meddle. Okay, Boaz is not taking the hint. I'm going to jump in here and make some arrangements. I don't really know that Naomi, that, that may have been part of her motivation. Let's face it, Naomi knows history and she knows that widows are usually not well provided for, and starvation in that society at that time was not unheard of. So she does have some motivation. But I don't get the feeling, really, because Naomi, you look at, and whether Naomi's motives are right or not, I believe Ruth and Boaz's motives were pure. But there's also this entire situation with the kinsman redeemer. Ruth is, a, is from Moab. She has no idea what the Jewish customs are. And this is a strange custom even for the Jews. I mean, they tried to trick Jesus in the Gospels, the teachers did, and said, you know, hey, what are, what are you going to do in this situation with the kinsman redeemer when the oldest brother marries a woman and he dies, and so the next brother takes her as his wife to raise up children to his older brother, and he dies. And in the course of time, all seven brothers have married her, and all seven brothers have died. Who's she going to be married to in heaven? Well, Jesus, you know, he realized he was being tricked, and he said, well, when you get to heaven, marriage is not part of the concept anyway. But I heard one, one pastor joked, he said, you know, after being married seven times and had seven deaths, who wants her? You know, her track record is she, she goes through husbands pretty quick and they don't survive long. But to our modern ears, this is a strange custom. But to the Jews, genealogy was vital. It was a huge part of their, their corporate identity, was who your father was, tracing your lineage. That's why you go all the way into to Matthew and Luke, you see the entire lineage of Jesus from both Mary's side and Joseph's side. They paid attention. Now, it, when, and at the end, when Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, he's not, remember, he's marrying her, but the children are not going to be his children. They're going to be the children and the offspring of Malon. Which, I understand the facts of life. They are literally going to be his kids. They're going to carry his DNA. But legally, they're Malon's children. 
And they're going to inherit Malon's property that Boaz is going to redeem and, and, and buy back. So this is, this is not an easy thing. In fact, we'll see in, in chapter 4, there is a guy that's, that has a higher position or a closer position than Boaz does. And he's ready to step in until he realizes he's got to take Ruth with the property. And it's like, whoa, there's some consequences to this. So this is not an easy step. We only, well, for, let's go back to verse 2. Naomi's telling Ruth, look, he is your kinsman redeemer. He's your guardian redeemer. And he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This is a practice that we, we see, and I'm not going to go there, but in Judges chapter 6, you know the story of Gideon, where if you read that whole passage together, Gideon, when God called him a great man of courage, which is ironic, shows God's faith in people, Gideon is down in a wine press, which has, has high walls. Normally when you winnow barley or wheat or, or, or any other um, grain, you go up on the top of a, of a ridge line so that you have a breeze blowing. And you beat the, the grain with big sticks and it, it, it takes the husk and, and breaks it loose from the grain. And then you take shovels and you throw it up in the air. The, the chaff, the husks, get blown away because they're very light. The grain falls back down. You do that enough, you end up with grain and not a lot of chaff. Gideon in Judges 6 is in a wine press. Why is he there? Because in the book of, of Judges, the, the nation of Israel has sinned and God has allowed the Midianites to come in and their habit was to come in at harvest time, steal their harvest, so he's threshing his wheat and his barley in secret. And God says, come on you man of courage. Now, was he being ironic? No, I believe he had faith and knew that Gideon had courage in him. He just needed a little boost. But this is what this is part of the reason that you're going to see Boaz in the field. Boaz is out there with his workers. They're, they're winnowing the barley, and they spend the night with the barley to make sure nobody comes in and steals it. This is his cash crop. This is like having all of your money in a big bag. You sleep near the bag till you can get it to the bank. That's what Boaz is doing. But in, in verse 3, notice what, what Ruth or Naomi continues to tell Ruth. She said, therefore, because he's out here in the field, meaning you're going to have access to him, therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. This is Naomi coaching Ruth into the, the, um, to get and process this law of the kinsman redeemer and get Boaz. She's, Ruth literally is going to offer herself for marriage to Boaz and allow him to take his place. Now, when it says, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment, this is not just Ruth um, getting herself prettied up. You know, one of the, 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 the strange fallacies of, of our modern dating 
is when you are dating someone, you only meet after you have bathed, combed your hair, put on your best, put on some good smellum, and then you go hang out and you're on your best behavior. And these young people get married and they think this is what life's going to be like. And suddenly you wake up that first morning after your honeymoon night and, you know, your, your, your spouse, you roll over and you breathe on one another and you get your first taste of morning mouth and hair's everywhere, beard stubbles out to, you know, wherever it is, and you realize, wow, this is not exactly what I'm used to. Well, a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is just Ruth putting on her best. No. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, we have the story of where, where David, when, when he, um, he and Bathsheba got together, she got pregnant, and he had um, Uriah killed, and she's still pregnant, and the, the, the judge... Uh, or the, excuse me, the prophet Nathan comes to him and gives him the story about the, the man who had one sheep and the man who had many sheep, and David pronounced judgment on that man. And because God had called David to be king, he had to shift that judgment. It was out of David's own mouth. David said, death is the judgment for that man. Well, that death fell on his newborn child. When the child was born, he was praying. And he went and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. He tore his garments. He prayed. He interceded. And then in, in verse 20, David heard that the child died. It's over. And verse 20, of, this is 2 Samuel 12, 20. David arose then from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. What was he doing? He, he ended his mourning. And everybody thought this is weird. Wait a minute. You were in mourning while the child was alive. The child is now dead and you stopped mourning. What's going on? He said, well, there's nothing I can do about it now. When the child was alive, I could mourn and intercede with God for my sin and hope that God's mercy fell on that child and that child lived. And I believe part of the reason that God allowed that child to die was because had he lived, he probably would have been heir rather than Solomon. And God already knew where this needed to go. But once that baby died, David stopped his mourning. And he says later on, there's no, there's no way I can change this. I will go to be with him, but he cannot. I can't bring him back to me now. So... There's no sense in me mourning. The whole point of all that is when it says that Naomi told Ruth, wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your best garment, this is a sign that she's telling Ruth, quit your period of mourning for Malon. You are a widow, and you've had the garments of a widow, but no more. Now it's time to move on. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, this is a hard thing for a lot of people. I, I, I have, I've probably had as much loss in my life as anybody. But I, I watch, because I'm on Facebook trying to, to manage the church's account, and I, that's how I keep up with my grandkids, but I see on there constantly about people mourning their, their mom or their dad or their brother or somebody, 
and they've been dead for years. Now, you never get over the loss of somebody very close to you. It's just, it, it will always be part of you. But you do need to reach a point where this is not part of my identity anymore. And for a lot of people, they get stuck in the mourning period, and that becomes who they are. That becomes their identity. I'm the person that lost, and I'm always the person of loss. And we need, this is part of what God's saying, there is a, there is a time to mourn, a time to cry, but there's also a time to wash your face, put on some new clothes, and get out and live life. Because you're not, they're not coming back to you, but you are going to go to them. And we got a job to do as Christians, and we need to get over what we've lost and start dealing with what we've got. That's what Ruth is doing here by, by washing herself and anointing herself and putting on clothes, putting on a change of clothes. Ruth chapter 3, verse 4. This is Naomi coaching again. Then it shall be when he lies down. She's told her, you go out to the threshing floor. You wait for Boaz. When, when they get done work at night, they're going to have a meal. He's going to drink some wine because harvest time is a time of celebration. Why are they celebrating? We're not going to starve to death this winter. That is a time of celebration. We, we were talking about some things in the men's group yesterday and, and um, about problems that, that men face. And it's, I mean, you can see part of it when I did the announcement. There are, just here in Indianapolis, there are two major women's ministries coming in August and September to minister to women in this city. Do you know how often people come in to minister to men? Never. Men, and especially in our culture right now, men are the forgotten people. If anything, you watch TV, men are, are pigs. Men are stupid. They need their kids and their wives to help them out because they're too dumb to find their way out the door. And if they go to work, dear God, they're probably going to get fired because they're just not very smart, you know. That's the world's vision of men, but that's not God's vision of men. Amen? But, but she's saying they are celebrating, and part of what I started to say, part of the reason that... that we have, and if you look at our problems compared to the problems of this culture, we have no problems. I hear people all the time talk about, oh, the food we have is dead because it's raised in dead ground. And I go to the grocery store and in the dead of winter there's grapes from Chile. There's fresh fruit all year long. A hundred years ago or 150 years ago... If a great Christmas present for people in our area would be an orange because you never saw fruit and you never saw uh, fresh vegetables. I can guarantee you, <clears throat> any of you know what uh, pellagra is? Nobody. Pellagra was common, common 100 years ago. And basically, it's a lack of fresh vegetables and lack of fresh fruit. And poor people would, would suffer from pellagra because it was the vitamins and the minerals that you get from fresh vegetables and fresh fruit. You would get that in the spring of the year when you've been eating canned goods all winter and you, didn't, you couldn't go to the store and buy a vitamin pill. 
We have more food, better food, better housing. King David didn't live under the housing conditions that we live under. He would have been jealous of the houses we live in. These people lived in mud huts. No air conditioning, no heat. They didn't even have chimneys a lot of times. They had a fire in the center of the hut and the, they, they lived in a smoky environment. They had more air pollution than we have. We think Indianapolis, is the, the air's polluted. Nothing compared to the huts that these people lived in all the time. And yet, the rate of suicide, in fact, even in this day, you go to third world countries, they have no suicides. Because people are clinging to life. The suicide rate in the United States is astronomical. Why? Because everything's provided, and so we sit around and follow our leisure time and think about how horrible life is. Oh my God, I've got to work a, a minimum wage job and they're not paying me a living wage. You got a job? If 40 hours doesn't meet your needs, work 60, work 80. Do you realize 80 to 100 hours was normal 100 years ago? Everybody worked that much. Well, it just shouldn't be that way now. Get off your rear end, get you some skills so you don't have to work a 100-hour week. But when you start, you may have to work 100 hours to make ends meet. If that's what you have to do, be industrious, be generous, and God will promote you and God will bless you. But instead, we sit around with the woe is me complex. These people didn't have it. But they are out winnowing their grain and they're celebrating because we're not going to starve. That's a celebration. And every harvest they face this. If we have a bad harvest, we may starve. Not everybody, but a lot of people will. The old, the sick, the very young, they're not going to make it. The population's going to drop when famine hits the land. Naomi's telling Ruth, wait till he finishes eating, wait till he has a few glasses of wine, he's going to be happy, and he's going to go lay down. Verse 4. Then it shall be when he lays down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she, meaning Ruth, said to her, all that you say to me I will do. Ruth just being obedient. Now, I've read in every commentary you get a wide variety of what this refers to. Some say there are huge sexual overtones to this. And there can be, uh, because the, one of the only places where, only other place, where this is, um, uh, this whole process of the kinsman redeemer is discussed is in Genesis 38, when it's talking about Judah, and he had a son who married a woman named Tamar, and the son died, and Tamar comes to Judah, and she said, I need a kinsman redeemer, and Judah, you're it. And he said, nope, not me, but I've got a young son. You just need to wait till he grows up. And so she waited till he grew up, and he didn't want to go marry Tamar. For one thing, Tamar's an old woman now. He wants a young bride. He didn't want this old lady. She was probably 30, you know, really old. And Judah didn't, didn't say, it's your duty, you will go do it. He said, 
fine, no problem. This is shocking to our modern minds, but what did Tamar do? She dressed herself up as a prostitute and went and put a prostitute's booth up in a place where she knew Judah would come by and Judah came by and ducked into her stall. And she had sexual relations with him and afterwards she said, okay, now I need my money. And he said, I don't have any money. She said, then I need a ring, your, your staff. I need something as a guarantee till you bring the money. So he gave her the guarantee. He headed home, came back to give her the money, and she's not there anymore. And then a few months later, they come to Judah. You need to go burn her, which is, that is not part of the law. Someone that commits adultery, they get stoned. But they're ready to burn her. She's played the harlot and she's pregnant now. It's three months later, she's starting to show. And he says, bring her on down. We'll do it. Great man of God. She, he comes, she comes down. He says, what is this? She said, it's true. And I've got the man's identification here that I played the harlot with. And she handed him his ring and his staff. And she said, I did it because you would not fulfill this law of kinsman redeemer and you left me no choice but to go to these drastic steps. And he had to admit, you're right and I was wrong. Because she had a legal right to ask for offspring not from Judah but from Judah's son. It was a legal thing. Judah should have stepped in, married her, taken her as his wife, in place of his dead son. He wouldn't do it, and the result was he was found to not be in the best light. So when it says that, that when Naomi tells her, go in and, and uncover his feet and lie down, this was not an uncommon practice in the, in the ancient world. Uh, servants a lot of times would, would sleep at the feet of their masters. Male and female. There, was no, there really is not necessarily a sexual overtone to this. Now, in the middle of the night, if, if Boaz would decide, I'm claiming my right as kinsman redeemer, that would have been perfectly acceptable because that would have indicated we're, we are now, I am your redeemer and I have now married you. That's not what happened. She came and laid down and verse 6 she went down to the threshing floor, did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And that's part of the reason Naomi said, be careful that you know exactly where Boaz goes. Because if you lay down at the feet of the wrong guy, it may be misinterpreted. But she paid attention, verse 7, after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. He's guarding his grain. She came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, and she said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Notice what, what her, the rest of her reply is, though. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. You are my kinsman redeemer. You are my guardian redeemer. This is her offer of marriage to Boaz. Naomi has said, look, Boaz ain't getting the hint. You're going to have to get bold. She did. This is her 
inviting Boaz to take up his position as kinsman redeemer. And depending on the character of the man and the nature of the person involved, it could go either way. Now, I want to look briefly because this, this last phrase that Ruth said, take your maidservant under your wing. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, keep in mind, Ezekiel was a prophet to the nation of Israel while they were in Babylon. They had sinned, they hadn't kept um, the, the, um, the Sabbath for the land every seven years. So they had to go off to captivity for 70 years in Babylon because they owed the land 70 years of rest. And while they're in there, God raises up Ezekiel. And in, in chapter 16, starting in verse 1, and we're, 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 I'm going to read this quick. We're heading down here. This is a picture, and this is very vivid language. But it shows a practice of infanticide that was very common in the ancient world. Still common in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, and, and basically, infanticide was when you had a child and you didn't want that child, usually because it was a girl or because it had some kind of physical defect, or you just had more children than you needed. Probably the number one reason, she was, it was a female child, and you needed sons, and you didn't have enough food and money to pay for, for girls. So basically, they just took the newborn, they didn't even cut the cord, they just threw it out and let it die of exposure. This, God's using, Ezekiel is using that as a metaphor here. He says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. He's using Jerusalem as an example for the entire nation. And say, thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In other words, you have no relationship with me when you were born. Specifically about the, 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 um, the city of Jerusalem, but also the nation of Israel. Remember, Abram, the father of the Jews, was born in the city of Ur. He was a Chaldean. He was not a Jew until he exercised faith in God's promise. Then he became a Jew. So he was born, his father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. This is just pure and simple infanticide. When a child was born in the ancient world, they would rub salt or diluted wine. They would take cloths and, and, and literally they, they would pack this baby in salt and wrap them up in a cloth. Partly it helped to dry out all of the fluids from childbirth, but it also, there was a belief in the ancient world that a newborn's skin was too tender, so you needed to toughen it up. So they toughened it up by wrapping them in salt. Don't know. But this baby, none of that happened. They just threw it out on the trash heap. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said... To you, in your blood, live. 
Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Twice he says this. You are born in desperate straits. You have no relationship with me. The big, big, big divide, uh, not just politically but socially, between um, the two ends of our society basically comes down to your view of humanity. The, the humanist view of humanity is at the heart of every man there is a good heart. And you just have to raise them right, train them right, and that goodness will come out of every person. And then you have the Christian perspective, which at the heart of every man is evil because we are born in sin. And no matter what you do, that is going to express itself. Now you can civilize it out of some people, but you don't change the heart. The only way to change that evil heart at the core of every man born is through the new birth. This, God is saying here, I'm commanding you to live even though you have an evil heart. He said, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. You have now come from this infant on the trash heap, and I said you're going to live, and I've blessed you so that now you have grown up and you're at the marrying age. That's what he's saying. Verse 8, When I passed you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. Notice this next phrase. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. When Ruth looks at Boaz and says, cover me with your wing, she's doing the same thing that God does with each of us. God says, you were born in your sin, but I commanded life to you. This is the reason that humanity, despite all of our faults, in fact, there is a, there is a philosophical viewpoint that says the reason when, when we look out that we never see advanced civilizations in any of the other star systems is because when, when any advanced civilization gets to the point where our civilization is, they discover nuclear energy and they make nuclear weapons and they destroy themselves. A really positive outlook on our on. What, what's going to happen with us. But they're not far wrong. We have the capacity to destroy our entire planet, to kill each other. We've been doing our best to wipe out each other totally from the very moment that Cain and Abel fought with each other. We have all, The reason that you will never have world peace is you cannot have peace in the heart of men. But God said, I'm going to cause you to live anyway. As evil as you guys are, I'm commanding life to you until you reach the age of accountability, which is what puberty is, the, the metaphor here. And when you reach that, that age, I will spread my wing over you and I'm going to cover your nakedness. I'm offering a covenant to you. All you have to do is accept it. This is the whole nature of mankind and God's relationship. We are evil and He works and works and works and works to get in relationship with us. But when Naomi says, I, I invite you to cover me with your wing, she's asking Him to enter into a covenant and make me yours. 
The language could not be more clear. This is what God does to us, what He's done to Jerusalem, what He's done to the nation of Israel, what He does to every human being alive. I want a relationship with you and I will cover you with my wings. She's just invited Boaz to do that. Now, what's Boaz's reply? Verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Already a hint that I do want a relationship with you. For you have sown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Evidently, Naomi had the ability. She was a very eligible bride. She could have put herself on the market and attracted some some younger guys. This is where we get the idea that Boaz got some age to him. But she's not interested in that. She's interested with following the Levitical law, even though she's not a Jew. And he's saying, "This this is pretty good on your part. Verse 11, though, says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. Three words that will strike fear into everybody's heart. Don't be afraid. Oh, Lord, what's about to happen? Take your kids to the doctor and say, Now, don't be afraid. What's every kid think? Oh, it's shot time. They'll start crying and squirming. Telling someone don't fear will always bring fear. He says, Don't fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. He's complimenting her. I know that you have done all of this in virtue, and everybody knows you are a virtuous woman. Verse 12, he says, Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is one that's closer than I. Hey, we just hit a snag. There are legal implications here. Boaz says, I am your, can be your kinsman redeemer, but there is a propriety to this. And you have one guy who is closer relative to Malon than I am to Malon. He has first choice. I know Ruth's got to be thinking, am I a piece of meat? And to our modern minds, especially ones that have been indoctrinated into the modern feminist mindset, it's like, wow, she's just being treated like a piece of meat. In some ways, yes, but in other ways, you've got to understand life was a day, just to stay alive was a daily challenge back here. So marriage was more than just, oh, I fell in love. Our, our, our romantic view of love is so perverted. Hollywood has perverted love to the point where people don't know what love is. Love is, I, I love Andrew Womack used this, this example. He said, most modern marriages are like, like um, milkshakes. You marry someone, you get this new milkshake, you jab a straw in them and you just start sucking. And when you hear the slurp, You realize, well, I sucked everything out of them I can get. You throw it away and go get a new milkshake. That is kind of the modern view. That's why why for a lot of young people, they're just not getting married anymore. We're just going to live together, and if things don't work out, it's easy to part. No, it ain't any easier to part from that relationship than it is when you sign the papers and get legally married. 
relationship splits are always difficult because when whether you have the marriage certificate or don't have the marriage certificate, when you join yourself in relationship with someone, you start intertwining your life and it's hard and difficult and hurtful to break that relationship. That's why God makes it that way. He doesn't want these relationships broken. Now, what's this mean for, for Naomi? Well, that's why he said, don't fear. Verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. I thought you liked this lady. What do you mean good? Well, Boaz has a little secret that Naomi doesn't realize. He's going to stack the deck. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go make this guy an offer. It's kind of like, you know, um, the Godfather. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Well, Boaz is going to rig this deal where this guy's going to have a chance to come redeem. Because um, this is not just redeeming Ruth and Naomi. It's also redeeming the land that belonged to them. Remember, God assigned the portions of land for every family. And every 50th year when you had the year of Jubilee, that land went back to its original owners. God did not want this land divided and where everybody, the rich ended up owning everything. He said, you can sell your land, but basically you're renting it for however many years left till the Jubilee. And there's good indication from this, these verses that when Elimelech left and went to Moab, he sold off his land and it's still there. It's in debt. And part of what Boaz has to do is pay for this land to get it back and become Ruth's wife and be, take on the support of Naomi and then raise up children to mail on. It's not, there's more to that than just, you know, we're going to run off, get married, and drive off with ten cans behind our new convertible. He said, if, if this man will perform the duty, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down till morning. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning. She arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He is, he's already said you're a virtuous woman. Now he's trying to protect her virtue. Well, if nothing sexual happened, why is he trying to protect her virtue? Why does he have to, why do they have to hide? Because it's a small town. And if you ever lived in a small town, people gossip. In fact, if you live in a big town, you're still going to belong to a small group, and the small group will gossip. It's, it's why you read in Proverbs the seven deadly sins. I think it's five of the seven all have to do with the mouth. Backbiting, slandering, talking about people. He does not want that to happen. So he's saying, just stay here because I don't want you leaving in the middle of the night. It's not safe. But you stay here till right before dawn, and then you get out before anybody else wakes up so they don't think that you've done something untowards. I'm protecting your virtue. Verse 15, though, he says, Also, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. Once you get apart from here, I want you to come back to this threshing floor. Remember, we saw last week or the week before, uh, an ephah 
of, of barley is between 40 and 50 pounds. It's nearly a bushel. He says, bring your shawl here. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Now, this is one tough cookie. This is between six times, you know, may have to have Aaron check my math, but that's about 250 pounds minimum. This is a load. He's saying, I can't perform the duty of a kinsman redeemer right now. My intention is to get it done. But so you know that you are blessed. Bring your shawl here. I'm going to fill it with so much grain that you're going to have a hard time getting it home. So that you don't go back to, to Naomi empty-handed. He laid it on her. She went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? I prefer the King James. She said, Who are you? Why would she say that? Because she wants to know, is this Ruth, the Moabitess, coming to me now? Or is this Ruth, the new wife of Boaz, coming to me now? Her first response is to, to her, or her first greeting to her, is asking, what happened? I have no doubt that Naomi's been up all night, praying or just sleepless in anticipation. Verse 17, then she, Ruth, said, These six ephahs of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, this is Naomi speaking to Ruth, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Naomi has no doubt. Ruth you got six bushels of barley here. It's proof positive. Boaz is not going to rest until he gets this mattered and he, settled, and he gets you. Just have a little faith. I know you're home. It didn't maybe go the way I thought it was going to go, but it's going to go the right way. That's why she said, sit still. The, 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 the connotation there is sit down and rest. Now, this started really, you know, remember the theme of, of the book of Ruth overall, the bright hope in dark days. But the theme of chapter 3 is Ruth is taking a risk. She's risking and at the end she's resting. Naomi says, this is what God said should happen. You're going to take a risk and step out in faith on what God's Word says. And it is a risk. Because if things go wrong, she's going to be like Tamar. And people are going to say, bring the prostitute out. Let's stone her. Let's burn her. But if things go right, you can sit down and just rest because it's all in Boaz's hands. And he's not going to rest. He's working on your behalf. That is the perfect picture for us. God said, this is how your life is going to go. And you look at it and say... That's sure not how it's been going. I know you call me blessed, but I sure feel bitter. Because ain't nothing worked out. Everything's screwed up. Everything's messed up. What could go wrong did go wrong. Murphy's Law is following me like a little puppy trailing after his mama. But God says that's not going to be the end. Well, then you're going to have to take a risk and step out in faith on God's Word. 
And when you do, it's going to be a risk. The hardest thing to do is to run contrary to what you see and what you think and what your emotions say, particularly your emotions. When you are afraid, it's sometimes I saw this, this little clip from a TV show, and I've never watched the show, but the clips are funny. And these are IT guys, and they love anything you know computerized, and they, they come around this corner and they see a robot. And this guy goes running up, look, a robot, a robot, a robot. And he said, I wonder why this robot's out here all by itself. Maybe it doesn't belong to anybody. Let's just take it home. And then they both look up, and they see a police tape. And they see the bomb squad. And they see one of their co-workers behind the police tape saying, get away from there, there's a bomb. And they look at each other and say, um, I think there's a bomb in the package. That's why the robot's here. He said, maybe we should leave. And the other guy says, I would love to. I just can't get my feet to move. Sometimes that's what fear does. You are frozen in place. You can't go left, right, up, down. You can't do anything. You're too afraid to do anything lest you do something wrong. And when God says, you need to do it this way, and all of your experience say, it's not going to work. What do you do? If God said it, you got to take the risk. And then you sit down and rest. Perfect picture. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, resurrected after He conquered death and hell, and He is now seated on the throne. Why is He seated? Because He's already said, this is how it's going to work out. I've sent my Holy Spirit. I've got this group of people down here. Some will die, but we'll replace them with new ones. And in the end, it's going to be like I said it was. Now you talk about a risk. Taking the 12 disciples that He knew and saying, I'm going to fill you with my Spirit and you're going to start my church. Wow! I would have never believed in those 12 men or the 11 that were left after um, the suicide. And then he brought Paul along. And Paul's first inclination was to kill every Christian I can see. They're all evil. They need to be killed. Wiped off the face of the earth. And yet God said, no. I'm going to build my church, and the powers of hell will not prevent it. And he took a risk on us. And all he asks us to do is when you, when you read my word and you know I'm asking you to do this, take a risk, step out and do it. And then once you've done everything that you know to do, having done all to stand, stand. Rest. I can't do anymore. Okay, just sit down and wait for me to do it. Amen? It's not an easy thing to do because our nature is, I got to work a little more, got to work a little more, I got to work a little more. And God's saying, if you've done everything you know to do, until I tell you something else to do, just sit down and let me take care of it. For one thing, when we try to help, we almost always mess it up. God doesn't need our help, He just needs us to take a risk on His word. Step out and do what He's told us by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for your word today. And I ask, Father, that you help each of us in the same way that Naomi instructed Ruth. This is the law of the kinsman redeemer, and this is how you go about getting your redeemer to to step into the relationship with you. Help us to get into your word and find out from your word how our redeemer, Jesus, wants to redeem us and what actions we need to take to see that covenant and that redemption made manifest in our lives and in those that we influence and those that we have relationship with. Help us, Father, to walk out and do our part and then learn to sit back and rest and let you work the details out and let you bring about the work that we might see your word and your will manifested in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCC. Indianapolis.com